The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's open our Bibles to the New Testament letter of First Thessalonians. And today we continue our study in one of the most challenging of all Bible doctrines. This, this is a much disputed doctrine and equally misunderstood. It is a hated doctrine by those who oppose it, and yet it is sincerely loved by those who understand it. There are many who are upset about it because it cuts across the grain of natural thinking. And it's not against spiritual enlightening, but it, enlightenment, but it certainly is against the depravity of man's heart and the way that we think. Some hate this doctrine so much that they won't have anything to do with Christians that believe it, and they claim that it's blight on Christianity. Some preachers hate it so badly that they'll not let their people get close to it or even talk about it. And you might think that because people treat this like the plague that it must have something to do with denial of Jesus Christ. That somewhere in this, there must be idolatry or there must be witchcraft. And there are many who think that it's blasphemy. And if so, you would be shocked to learn that those who hold this doctrine actually have a higher view of the majesty of God, of the sovereignty of God, of the grace of God than any others. And people who believe it are humbled by it. And they are eternally grateful for God for this doctrine that he has glorified himself and promised that he would present to himself a people for his name. And you would also be shocked to learn that this doctrine has as much support through biblical texts as salvation itself. In fact, it is so intertwined within the history of Israel and the history of the church that salvation is impossible without it. If not for this doctrine, I wouldn't be here to tell you about it today. And whether you believe the doctrine or not, you wouldn't be here to hear it. This doctrine is found in our text, the First Thessalonians. It's woven throughout the Old Testament. It's found in the New Testament in Jesus' teachings, especially in the Gospel of John. It's found extensively in the letters that are penned by the Apostle Paul. Peter preached this doctrine on Pentecost. And then he wrote about it in his epistles. Jude speaks of it indirectly in his short letter. And so when we speak of this doctrine, it's not as if we have to search under rocks to find this. It's not obscure, it's open before us. And short of the work of Christ in redemption and the teachings of the second coming of Christ, this doctrine is one of the most prevalent that we find in Scripture. And with this much information, there's very little difficulty in discerning its meaning, its core central doctrine that is required for understanding who we are in God's eternal plan and the sovereign application of his plan. So what is this doctrine? Well, it's the one that says, for his own purpose and for his own glory, God chose those who would be his children. It's a doctrine that says that God's sovereign choices cannot be governed by unknown circumstances. It's a doctrine that says that God has the right to do with his creatures as he pleases, all to the praise of his glory. And this is the doctrine that we find in verses 4 and 5. Would you look at your Bibles there at 
1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 4 and 5, where the Apostle Paul says to these people in the Thessalonian church, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election. This election, the, the choice of certain people, is made known by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel and is made in much assurance. This is the doctrine. Paul said, I know you are the elect of God. I know that you are chosen. And if he knew it, they could know it. They were children of God. They belonged to God. They believed. They were redeemed by Jesus Christ. Their lives showed that God had chosen them. And Paul used that evidence to prove that they would never be abandoned by God. Well, here is where we see that these people in the church at Thessalonica were a very, very much different people. They weren't like others that were around them. They were changed. At some time in the past, God called them out of that sinful culture in which they lived, and he determined that, that he would love them and change them from what they were. They were their elect. They were chosen, and they believed because God determined that they would believe. Now, we know that their belief, their election rather, preceded their faith, preceded their belief, because the Apostle Paul wrote in Timothy in his second letter, in verse number 10, he said, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they might obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul said, I labor for this, I'm working for this, I'm preaching the gospel that the elect will obtain and that tells us that they were chosen before their salvation, before they believed. And this means that God's, God's choice preceded their conversion. It preceded their repentance and their faith. And so this is the doctrine that we uncover in this text and in many other scriptures. And maybe it's even wrong to say that we uncover it because it's never hidden. It's right here, mostly on the surface of the scriptures for us to see and to read, although the roots of this doctrine are profoundly deep in the Word of God. And those who don't see it, those who are blinded by their tradition, who are blinded by their stubbornness, are blinded because they simply touched a preacher who once said, don't go there, don't talk about that, let's don't get involved with that. Those are people that miss the most profound joy of their salvation in God. This doctrine is to be embraced and cherished because it forms the most formidable foundation of our salvation and security in Jesus Christ. Now last week we, we began the study with the definition of the doctrine. The doctrine's in verse number four, your election of God. And we asked the question, what is election? What is this doctrine? What is the right definition of it? Now, the long definition has been given by many erudite theologians, but I've decided to settle on one that was given by Augustus Strong, who was a Baptist theologian of the early 20th century, whose systematic theology became a textbook for many seminaries uh, for many years. And this is what he wrote about the doctrine. He said, election is that eternal act of God by which in his sovereign pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, he chooses certain ones out of the number of sinful men 
to be the recipients of the special grace of his spirit and to be made voluntary partakers of Christ's salvation. Now Strong's definition might seem a little bit complicated and that's because in that definition he includes several other doctrines that need to be looked at but we're not going to concern ourselves with all of that today. We'll get to it at other times. And so I've just simplified this doctrine into this, this very easy statement that election is God's intent. It is God's intent to save some sinners. Not all people are saved. Did you know that? I think that you're aware of it. You know your neighbors. You know the people that you work with. You read the newspapers. You're very much aware that most people that you come in contact with are not saved. The former pastor of this church, because I've been pastor for 15 years now, but the former pastor of this church said and taught that God elects all people to salvation. And I don't know where he got that because the Bible never says that. Election is a choice of some, but never of all. I mean, why do you have an election if it's all people? If our, in our presidential elections, uh, there are often several candidates that run for office. I think in the past election, there may have been 10 or 12 that were running. Why, why did they have debates among all these candidates if, and why do they have primaries if all of them are going to be elected? Well, Paul said he labored for the gospel that the elect, this, this certain group, that they would obtain their salvation. And so an election of all would also mean a universal salvation. And we don't affirm universal salvation. We don't believe everybody's going to go to heaven, do we? Now, we believe those who trust in Jesus Christ are the only ones that will be in heaven. So we're not going to affirm universal salvation. And so we can't possibly entertain a universal election when Paul said the elect will obtain their salvation. Is that clear to everybody? You understand the reasoning? Paul said in our text that he knew their election. They had believed. And so belief is proof of election. All don't believe. And so it's nonsense to say that all are elected to salvation. So we know what election is. It is a choice, not of all, but of certain individuals that first are known only to God, but then are known to us by belief in Jesus Christ. Now secondly, we ask the question, who chose us? How did we get this election? Who chose us? Paul said, knowing your election of God. Now, if you peruse the first few verses of this chapter, you'll see a marvelous display of the Trinity. We are Trinitarians. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see that in these verses. In verse number one, it's God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse number five, he speaks of the Holy Spirit. And in this text is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But you notice in verse number 4, when he talks about the election, he only says God. That your election is of God. That your election, your choice, is by God the Father. Because whenever you see God used in that sense in the Scriptures, it's speaking specifically of God the Father. The choice of children belongs to God the Father. And certainly that makes sense, doesn't it? God is a father, and a father has children. Now, I'd like for you to uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Almost everything that I've told you this morning is confirmed in this one chapter of Ephesians. 
And I remind you that when Paul wrote the Ephesian letter, he wasn't writing to deep theologians. These are ordinary Christians that he writes to. And he writes very profound concepts. And he expected that they would hear them and believe them, that they would know what these things mean. Now I want you to look at verse number 3, and, and we'll start there and just pull out some pieces to show you what God the Father does in election. In Ephesians 1, verse number 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse number 3 says it is God the Father who blesses. And in verse number 4, that these blessings come to us because he has chosen us. And in verse number 5, it says that he predestined us. Predestined to what? Well, it says to be adopted as children. So not only are we chosen for new birth in Jesus Christ, but we're also confirmed in what we call the legalities of salvation. That is, that we are adopted. That is a legal proceeding. That's a legality of salvation. We are predestined to be legally adopted children of God. Now in verse number 9, if you'll look carefully, he says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. And then verse 11, And whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him, who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. God the Father chose us. It was God the Father's work to elect. And in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed to his Father, and he spoke of how he and his Father were together before the world was created, before he came to this earth, that Jesus the Son was in heaven and the Father gave him a commission to come to this earth to die for the ones that he had chosen. Jesus repeated that commission in verse 11 of John 17. He said, Now, and now, I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep thou, or keep through thine own name, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Now the ones that are given are the ones that God the Father chose. Last week I quoted from Jesus when Jesus said, I chose you. Paul says, God the Father elects. God chose. Jesus said, I chose. Are, are we confused? Who is it then that chose us? You know, this is actually the same dilemma that we face when we say, who, who created the world? In some places it says that God created the world, doesn't it? In others it says that the Spirit created the world. In, in the book of Colossians, it says Jesus made all things, and by him all things consist. So which one of them did this? Who created the world? Was it God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer to the question is they all did. Because they are all one in essence. They are all one God. But we also understand that in the Godhead there are distinct personalities. And when they are considered as personalities, it is the Father who plans, it is the Son who implements the Father's plan, and it's the Holy Spirit who empowers Jesus to carry out the plan and for those who have been chosen by God to believe in this plan that God implements. Now one thing though is unmistakable in all of this. One unmistakable fact is found here, and that is 
you didn't choose yourself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all in front of you. And the Bible says in the Scriptures, the Scriptures say, never say, that the moving cause of salvation is a choice that you make. Do you make a choice? Of course. Yes, you make a choice. But not here. Election. This decision to save is God's, not yours. Now this is where we run afoul of those who don't understand the doctrine. Oh, they agree there is an election. But they say that the basis of this election is that God foresaw what you would do. That God foresaw that you would hear the gospel and you would believe. And then based upon what he foreknew that you would do, then he elected you to salvation. That's a very common view. But is that true? Well, our Baptist forefathers specifically excluded election based upon foreseen faith. That's in the early Baptist confessions of faith. And they based it on scriptures like we just read a moment ago. Ephesians 1 verse number 9. And we read in that verse that God's choice is according to his good pleasure. That it's according to his own purpose and grace. A purpose that is found in himself, not in us. Then likewise, the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 4.10, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And in verse number 19, we love him because he first love us. Is there any of us that would take those scriptures and try to switch that around, that we would change that and say that God saw that we would love him, so he decided to love us? Isn't that the same as saying that God chose us to salvation because he saw that we would choose him? Now let's go back to Ephesians again. God chose why do we enjoy all these spiritual blessings in heavenly places? Well, it's because God chose. How did Paul begin the letter? Did he say this? Did he say, now here's how you come into all these spiritual blessings. You receive them because you have accepted Christ. And you receive the spiritual blessings because you have believed. You receive them because Christ died. And you receive them because he arose. And you receive them because you believed the gospel. Well, there's truth in all those statements. All, every one of those statements is true, but none of those is Paul's starting place. Most believe all of this started with them. It started with them and what they did in trusting Christ as Savior. And then some will even say that it started with their good sense, that they evaluated this and they evaluated the benefits of the gospel, and others don't, but I did. And then there are some who say, no, it all started with Christ's work on Calvary. Now, folks, we all agree... We're all Christians here. We all agree that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross was an indispensable work, and we can't do without that. But that's not where Paul started. He started with a time before time. He started before you were born. He started before you'd done anything good or evil. He started before you had faith. He started in eternity past with God the Father according as He hath chosen us. Now, do you see anything different in 1 Thessalonians? Where did Paul start to claim his confidence in the Thessalonians that they were true people of God? Where did he start? Well, he says that their faith, in verse number 3, their, their faith and their labor of love and their hope in Christ is because of the election of God. 
Now, if Paul starts there, then where should we start? Why are we saved? Why have we believed? Why did you decide that you were going to live for Christ? Why are you here today worshiping Jesus Christ? Well, you've got to be careful how you answer that. Because a wrong answer is very close to blasphemy. If you throw all of that responsibility on you and what you did, then you deny the election of God. How did Paul know? What did he, what did he base their assurance on? And this is why he's writing the book, to give them assurance. And what did he base that assurance on? That Christ was going to take them to heaven. Oh, they were concerned about the second coming. They were enduring persecution. And they thought, well, maybe God has abandoned us. He, he's not going to save us, really. And how did he approach this to show them that Christ will never leave you? He went to the proof that they were the elect of God, their work of faith, their labor of love, their hope in Christ. They're all markers that God had chosen them. And so in the present, they showed they were chosen in the past. And what Paul did was he looked back at the past and he saw a pattern. And he thought within himself, this is what the chosen people of God do. He, he'd seen this before. He'd seen this before in his preaching. He saw what others who believed did. He knew what they did. He knew what he did in his own personal life. And he knew, well, they must be chosen. If they do what chosen people do, then they must be the chosen people of God. That's a concept that's consistent throughout Scripture. Psalm 65.4, we read in the opening exercises today, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. In Psalm 106, verse 5, that I may see the good of thy chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, that I may glory with thine inheritance. So we read this and we know it. The root of our relationship with God is not what we do, what we would do, but that our salvation and our relationship with the Almighty is grounded in the electing love of God the Father. He chose you in Christ. He chose you in Him. And it's always in Him. It's never apart from Jesus. And when you get that thing into your heart, this will change your viewpoint of the entire world. And I've, I've said this before. It's not original with me. But the sovereign work of God in salvation and the doctrines of grace that we teach are a different worldview. Give all the glory to God for what He does. Give none to yourself None to what we have done because it all exists in God. He's the one who does this. He chose you. Now here's an interesting verse in Psalm 100. We read Psalm 100 last week in the opening exercises. And in verse number 3, there the psalmist says, Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people. Now get this, who is He writing to and talking about? He's talking about God's people. Not everybody in general. He's talking about God's people. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us, not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So who are the sheep of His pasture? The ones that He made to be sheep of His pasture. He hath made us, not we ourselves. And so how many times have you read that scripture and you just missed God's election in this Old Testament text? Mark it down. God chose you. Now thirdly, here's more of this blessed doctrine. 
we ask this next question, number three, when were we chosen? Now, opponents of election really don't like this part. They struggle with it. And so there are some who say that you were chosen when you believe. Now, most people won't deny that there's a, an election of any kind. No, they know there is an election. They're not going to say that because election appears so many times in the Scripture. So what they need to do because they don't like the doctrine is to obscure it and, and to work around it. And so they say that you are chosen when you believe. And that's because they're never going to give up the idea who they are and that they are the masters of salvation, not God. Ephesians 1 says we are chosen in Him. And so they take that to mean that when you believe, you are in Him. And so that's the time you were chosen. But we've already seen that can't be true because we read 2 Timothy 2.10 where it said the elect will obtain their salvation. They were chosen before they are saved. Now, we don't really need to even go to 2 Timothy to prove it because we're right there in Ephesians chapter 1. And it not only says that election is before faith, but it tells you how long before faith. Verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. You were chosen before God made anything. Before the cornerstones of this world were laid, this was done. This was done before God put Adam in the Garden of Eden. This is before Adam fell. And that shows you that God knew the fall would happen and that he gave divine permission for it to happen. The choice of your salvation was before the first promise of salvation in the Messiah in Genesis 3.15. It was before Abraham became the father of the faithful. It was before Moses became the mediator of the law. It was before David modeled Christ who would sit on his throne. It was before the prophet Isaiah wrote about the first and second advents of Christ. It was before the incarnation of Christ in Bethlehem. It was before his sinless life in Galilee and Judea. It was before his death on Calvary. And it was before his ascension from the Mount of Olives. And then interestingly... Believers like Jeremiah in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament said that they were chosen before they were born. In Romans, Paul said the patriarch Isaac was chosen before he was born. He said that Jacob was chosen before he was born. He said Ishmael was not chosen and Esau was not chosen. Are you getting the picture? Before you made choices, God made choices. Election is from God the Father, and that's where we start. We start where the Word of God says we are to start, and that is before the foundation of the world. Now, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 13, these are familiar scriptures. Not only did God choose us, but He also wrote down the choice. Hear me. He wrote down his choice. In the 13th chapter, verse 8 of Revelation, it says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Now that scripture is talking about those who will worship the Antichrist in the end times. All those that dwell on the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Names are written in the book of life. Now I don't have time to deal with this aspect today. But did you know that in the judgment. The word of God says God is going to open the books. 
And one of the books it says that he will open is the book of life. And if a name is not written in the book of life, then that person will not be in heaven. That book was written when the choice was made. It makes sense, doesn't it? When you make the choice, that's when you write it down. That's the logical time to record it. So we turn just a few more pages over to Revelation 17 and verse number 8. Essentially the same subject, the Antichrist, where it says the beast in verse number 8, the beast, that is the Antichrist, the beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they hold, behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. That's about end times. That's about the Antichrist. And who is going to worship the Antichrist? Those whose names are not written in the book of life. Written when? Before the foundation of the world. So what are we learning? There was an election. God the Father chose. It was before he created. Whatever eternity past was, that's when God selected and that's when God wrote down the names. And his selection was according to the good pleasure of his will, not according to anything that he saw in us. Now, thank God that he never considered what we are without him, because if he did, he would never choose us. He chose us for reasons in himself. He chose us to be what he wanted us to be, children of his, of his and heirs of his, and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Now let me give you just another thought. Uh, perhaps I need to explain my sermon processes. As most of you know, I study and write sermons far ahead. Uh, right now in the Sunday afternoon series, I'm all the way up into August already. And uh, some of what I wanted to say to you today, I had to borrow from one of those sermons. So you might hear this again if you come in August. Uh, in the end of that series, you'll hear a little bit of this again. So I needed some of this information. And, and one of the things that I, that I put into that sermon is that there, there, there are many people who wonder, what was God doing before he created the world? What was he doing? How did God occupy his time? Well, God's eternally existent. There wasn't always an earth and a sun and the solar system and the universe. So what did God do to occupy himself? Well, that question is moot to begin with because there was no time to occupy. No time. There was no such thing as time before he created the sun to rule the day and the earth to rule the night. But our minds are made to consider time. We can't think without time. Think. Try that. Try to think without time. You can't do that. So we have to frame our questions according to time. So we have to ask the question, what did God do to occupy himself before he created the world? Well, I'm sure Stephen Hawking understands it much better now than he did a few months ago. I'm not a fan of Augustine, but he made an interesting remark when someone asked him this question. Someone asked him, what was God doing before he created the world? And Augustine said, he was creating hell for curious souls. That, that's a pretty good answer, I think. Uh, meaning that, you know, it's just plain foolishness to ask, what was God doing? But thankfully, we, we do have something more positive to consider. What was God doing? Well, there's nothing that we could confirm with a guess. 
But there is something that we can know by God's own revelation. He told us what he was doing. Before he created, there was a council between the persons of the Godhead. Now, of course, that's putting it in terms that we can understand. But we could say there was a meeting. And in this meeting, God the Father planned, and then he made a promise to his Son. Now, obviously, God planned that he would create the world and that he would create man. And there's this whole issue of the divine purpose. And in that plan, there was a provision for Adam's fall into sin and then the method by which God would redeem fallen man. Now, take your Bibles and open to John 17 because I want you to see something that nobody has ever seen before until the Bible was given to us or anybody ever knew about because... Here, Jesus is going to give you some insight into what happened before the world was created. In John 17, he was praying to his father, and we have an example here of how an eternal conversation goes. John 17, verse number 5. Jesus prays to his father, and he recalls the eternal counsel. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So before the world was created, the Father and the Son were in glory. There was always equality in the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equally God. And we learn in Philippians 2 that although the Son was equal to the Father and always one in essence, that the Son agreed that he would subordinate himself to the will of the Father. So what went on in this council that caused the Son to agree that he would become incarnate, that is, that he would become man, he would become flesh, and then go through the humiliation of the cross? Well, there's a motive. There's a plan to exalt the glory of God above the creature, and that plan was for the Son to receive an inheritance, that he would receive a gift from his Father, and the gift is those people that God chose to give him. But before that gift could be received, they must be created, then they must fall into sin, they must be condemned, and then they must be redeemed and reconciled to the Father. This is what we see in verse number 2. That God the Father gave the incarnate Son power over all people to what? To give eternal life to the ones that were given Him. Verse number 2. As thou hast given Him power over all flesh, that He should give eternal life, to as many as thou hast given him. Now those are the only ones that would receive eternal life. We understand that from verse number 9. When Jesus said, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. For they are thine. And then the rest of this prayer is concerned with this group, distinguishing them from the rest of humanity. Then finally, in verse number 24, Jesus said that the ones that were given to him would be with him in glory. That all the ones that the Father gave him would be with him in glory. That's the promise made by the Father to the Son before the world was made. Verse 24, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. This is the distinction between the elect and the non-elect. If some people go to hell then it must be because they weren't a part of this gift. And if those people were not a part of the gift and they went to hell anyway, if they were a part of the gift and went to hell anyway, then God the Father didn't keep his promise. Which proves that 
the preacher who says all are chosen to salvation couldn't possibly be right. Now, this promise that God the Father made is what theologians call the covenant of redemption. And those who hate the doctrine of election have a tall mountain when they get into John 17. Here's a tall mountain to climb that this election and salvation were determined long before they could ever make their objections. And their objections have no validity unless they were able to sit in on this eternal council. Now that's about as much insight as we have into the mind of God. God purposes in himself. All we know is that he decided, and he decided the method of redemption, and all that we know is what he told us. We know we are elected, and we know that Christ agreed to die for those that are elected. And that third part, who is elected, that's known only by the fact that they believe. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He doesn't explain John 17. And he doesn't explain Ephesians 1. He only explains how do you know that you are chosen by God? Is there a work of faith? Is there a labor of love? Is there hope in Jesus Christ? Then if so, you must be elected. Now I don't know what to tell you about that, but that election is in the Bible. It's here in the passages of John 17 and Ephesians 1 and 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 Timothy 2.10 and many, many other places so much that we can't deny it without being seriously close to denying essential truths of God's Word. Now since God knows and Jesus knows and the Holy Spirit knows, then we would expect to see consistency in what Jesus taught and what the Holy Spirit inspired others to write in the Scriptures. In John chapter 10, our understanding is opened further on this subject by what Jesus said in verse number 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. In verse 15, as the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus said the sheep. And they are the same as the elect. Well, how do I know that? Well, I've got other parts of the Bible to tell me that. Matthew twenty four thirty one, And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Then we go into Matthew 25, where Jesus said, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory, and before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. The sheep are the elect. And Jesus died to save the sheep, the elect. In John 3... Jesus told Nicodemus that the Holy Spirit would work in these people and regenerate them. In John 6, he said the Father would draw them to faith in Christ. That's the outworking of the covenant of redemption. All the steps are put in place for the salvation of those who are chosen before the foundation of the world. God's purpose does not fail. As Paul said, the elect will obtain their salvation. God ensures that it will be done, that he might keep his eternal promise that was made to the Son. We have no doubt about the time. It was before the foundation of the world. 
It's confirmed in Ephesians 1. It's confirmed in the Psalms. It's confirmed by our opportunity to listen in on the covenant of redemption in John 17. It is confirmed by Revelation 13 and 17. Now folks, I will confess to you that these are thoughts that are far too high above me. There's far too much here for me to comprehend completely. But we're thrilled with the doctrine of election. Because those that are chosen by God are not nameless, faceless people in a great sea of humanity. That God didn't say, well, I'm going to send my son to die, and I sure hope that there are some that believe so I can keep my promise. But how is that promise made sure? God named the names. God wrote down the names, and then God took every action that was needed, every step to ensure their salvation. So he's never dependent upon what you or I do to make his promises good. Jesus said to the Father, I know that you'll keep your promise because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And why did he say that? Because they already discussed it. And because they already agreed upon it, that it would happen. So friends, do you see why you should never run from this doctrine? We love it because how could God show us greater love than to say to us, I loved you because I chose you. The son and I talked about you before you were born. Your name was given to my son and he said that he would die for you. Now is that better than getting to heaven and Jesus looks at you and says, how did you get here? No, I want to hear him say, welcome. I've been expecting you. Is that better than getting to heaven and seeing many, many empty neighborhoods that are never filled because there's nobody there who believed in Christ to fill those? Well, that's what there must be if there's no election. If God doesn't know who will receive Christ, that's what you would have. Empty neighborhoods in heaven that were intended for people that should have been saved. No, folks, we rejoice. Because God has an eternal plan. Now, I would ask you finally, as we close, are you concerned that you might not be in the number of God's elect? Are you saying, well, that just doesn't sound fair. I, I might be, I might not be one of God's elect, and I can't believe in Christ because my name wasn't written down. And the Father and the Son, they didn't discuss me. Not in the council halls of eternity. I'm not sure that I am one of God's elect. Well, let me tell you something. You don't have to listen in on that conversation in eternity. You don't have to see the list of names where all those names are written down to know that you're one of God's elect. You, know, you want to know how you can know? Believe. Come to Jesus Christ right now. Trust Him for your salvation and then you'll know that your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Those whose names are written down are the ones who believe. They're the ones that were chosen by God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great doctrine that we've had the opportunity to speak of today. Lord, to know that you created the world with a plan in place, that you have your children that you chose. And Lord, at the same time, you say, all may come, all may believe, all may trust. And they will know that they are the chosen of God by that belief in Jesus Christ. So Lord, we encourage 
every person in this room today to examine themselves. Do they want to believe in Christ? Then that desire came from you because you chose them. And we never have to worry about those who don't want to come because they would never want to come unless you chose them. Lord, we thank you for your people and for, again, this doctrine today. Help us to understand it in a better way and rejoice in it that you know us. You've always known us as your people that we would come to faith in you. We thank you for faith in Jesus Christ who is the Savior of the world. Bless us today, Lord, as we sing and then leave this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.